0: The echo chamber brought to you by the homes report and produced by the international broadcast specialist marketeers for dc ladies and gentlemen welcome to the echo chamber show we're very excited today we have in the studio with us rory sutherland who is the vice chairman of ogilvy and Mather Group in the UK, which includes all of Ogilvy's agencies, of course, the advertising firm Ogilvy PR, Ogilvy One. And you also head, if I'm not mistaken, I'm Ogilvy
1: Change? co-founder of Ogilvy Change, which is a behavioral science practice within the group.
0: Excellent. Now, that's perfect, of course. One of the reasons why you are, I think, fairly high profile is because you're an advocate for what's, I guess, best described as, as behavioral economics, behavioral science. Um, is that a fair way to describe your your passion yes, for uh, the topic?
1: I, I occasionally describe myself as a, a behavioral science impresario, which okay. is I can't qualify uh, as a behavioral scientist i have I'm a classicist in fact by background and so I'm entirely self-taught in the behavioral sciences with no qualifications but I do regard it as my duty to make as much noise uh, about the importance of this area and the possible progress I think it offers to marketing services companies of all kinds.
0: Mm. And as someone who's been in the marketing services industry now for a long time, I think... 28 or, years. Or 28 yeah. years. Why is behavioral economics, in your view, so important?
1: Several reasons. Uh, one of which is simply it will help you notice things that you otherwise wouldn't notice. It will help you generate ideas for solving problems for clients that might not have occurred to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, without the kind of checklist of understanding human behavior and the codification of of the anomalies of human behavior which behavioral science provides. I mean, Daniel Kahneman's partner, Amos Tversky, always said of their work um, in behavioral science, he said that the things we do have long been known to car salesmen and advertising executives, what we do is we codify them and put them in a kind of recognisable academic framework. Mm. So that's important in just the generation of ideas. I think it's equally important in the selling of ideas or the explanation of ideas. So. Generally, good creative people in advertising, good PR people in particular, have always been instinctive behavioural scientists. They've understood this stuff instinctively. What sometimes happens is it's very difficult for you to sell your ideas because the vocabulary of marketing, to be blunt about it, has always been awful. Um, The language that advertising people tend to use, or design firms tend to use, is fine if you're talking to fellow believers, it's fine if you're talking to other marketers. But a bit like the language of astrology, it's okay if you're talking to fellow converts, but when you're talking to anybody else, you sound mad.
0: So some examples of of the kind of Uh, language... Well,
1: the the phrase I often used is, it's absolutely fine if you're within marketers, just between us girls, as it were, saying Mm. brand iconography or something of that kind. The problem is if you go to someone in operations or someone in finance, for instance, and start talking about brand iconography, that's a little like going to the head of thoracic surgery at St. Mary's Hospital and saying, we must trust to the healing power of the crystal. It sounds that crazy. And I think one of the things marketers have made a mistake about is Mm. I genuinely believe that the kind of talents you find within PR agencies or advertising agencies or uh, digital agencies, for example – can be deployed to solve far more problems than they're currently given to solve.
2: Mm.
1: But part of the problem is because of the language we use, I think we've painted ourselves into a corner where marketing is used for a tiny fraction and and then generally at a late stage.
3: Mm.
1: Um, it, it's used to solve a tiny fraction of the problems where it could be useful. Mm. And I would say that there's a slight marketing problem within marketing agencies themselves in that What you have within a building like Ogilvy's, 2,000 people or so, you have, you know, a mixture of talents, which, you know, is is essentially it could be a general hospital for business problem solving. But Mm. we've kind of put this sign out the front that says cosmetic surgery. Mm. And. So it's a little like, you know, much of the language, it's kind of, no, no, we'll do you a nice brand boob job or a butt lift. You know, the whole thing is very much the language of kind of, you know, fairly trivial stuff about appearance um, or perception at a very shallow level. And um, I think that massively limits us in terms of the problems which we're ever invited to solve. Mm. And often when we're invited to solve problems, other people, whether it be economists or management consultants or product designers, have all got there first with their own models. Mm. And human psychology is then left to last as a kind of bells and whistles thing to add on at the end. Mm. Uh, and, And part of this problem, I think, is that in many of Client organizations, the marketing function has been reduced to something called Marcoms. Mm. And I think the second that happens, I mean, marketing is almost lost Mm -hmm. because marketing is emphatically it's a discipline. It's a way of looking at the world Mm -hmm. um, of which communications are a part
2: Mm -hmm. But if
1: what's happened, because historically we only made money from the comms bit because Mm -hmm. we were paid on commission, as a result, ad agencies got disproportionately interested in the part which was Mm commission-based. And then when payment shifted to payment by fee rather than payment by commission, everybody had a good old grumble because it was slightly more difficult to make money than it was under the old regime – Something strange happened in that nobody spotted the opportunity, which is now we can be paid by fee. We now have an opportunity to make money solving a far wider range of problems than we solved before. Mm. And there was something about communications agencies that the structure and the muscle memory was so strong that they kept on doing the things they'd always been incentivized to do under the old commission arrangement Mm -hmm. and completely failed to spot, um, you know, the bright sunlit uplands that uh, lay elsewhere.
3: Mm.
0: And you think having a, a a better understanding of behavioral triggers can help in that endeavor, in broadening the kind of problems that marketers can solve? Yeah,
1: I occasionally describe marketing as the science of knowing what economists are wrong about. Mm. And what I mean by that is that um, in most organizations now, the proxy for understanding the organization is generally financial abstraction. No one can completely understand a large organization at the top. Mm-hmm. So the... Model they tend to use in order to understand things is a numerical financial model because numerical things effectively aggregate very neatly. And when you start understanding a business almost through the eyes of, you know, through the lens of spreadsheets and numerical data, an awful lot of information gets lost. Now, not all of it, not all of this is useless. I'm not suggesting that economics is useless. Like the tube map. There are large parts of London where the tube map is a very, very good guide to getting around. Mm-hmm. You know, central and north London, the tube map ain't bad. There are distortions, et cetera. There are cases where people make dumb decisions because the tube map isn't, as a model, completely geographically accurate. But north of the river, it's OK. South of the river, it's a catastrophe. I mean only you know half of London's population live there but only 10% of the tube stations are there. I don't know if you're north or south London but North, n- yes. north Londoners don't understand how South Londoners get around.
2: No. Yes. Now the,
1: the the truth of the matter is there's another map which is called a rail map which shows the railways above ground and South London is actually very very well served far better served with those railways than North London is. Mm. But if you want to solve a South London journey problem, you need a different map to the map you use to solve North London problems. And if you want to solve problems that involve human psychology or behavior, the economic map, the North London map, Mm. is not really the one to use. It's Mm. not totally useless, but it's very, very incomplete.
3: Mm.
0: So what would that look like? What would a a map of human psychology in terms of understanding an organization, understanding how people react to an organization, what does that look like? I think it comes
1: from understanding that, first of all, the economic notion of rationality mm. is a distortion. That creature of economics called homo economicus has never existed in the wild and wouldn't survive, indeed, if you, if you managed to kind of create one through gene, you know, genetic manipulation. Homo economicus would die or be beaten up. And that's because uh, very rapidly, people Sim- don't make simply decisions. because as a species, mm. the way we make decisions in a world of imperfect information, for example, uh, in a world of imperfect trust, with in many information asymmetries, the rational way to make decisions in such a world is not the same as in the imaginary economic world of perfect information and perfect trust. Mm. Now, if you've always wondered why people in, in economics actually, you know, many people who write for The Economist, for example, people in the finance function tend to hate marketing. It's because they have a fantasy of how the world should work in which, because you have perfect information and perfect trust, marketing is unnecessary. And I freely admit that in such a parallel universe, where people had, you know, there was complete information symmetry, perfect information, perfect trust. Uh, People were, you know, anonymous actors, um, effectively uh, maximizing their expected utility in a series of anonymous standalone transactions. In that world, you wouldn't need a marketing function. The reason you need a marketing function is because we don't live in this world. We never have. And our brains did not evolve to cope with that kind of fantasy world because our brains were too busy having to cope with reality. Mm. And Mm -hmm. so a very useful concept here, Gerd Gigerenzer, I think, is the originator, a man at the Max Planck Institute in Berlin. He calls it ecological rationality. Now, I'll give you an example of ecological rationality. If you were a um, supposedly logical person buying a car, the economics idea of a rational way to buy a car is to find out a lot about cars – And go to a car person, perhaps, who offers you a guarantee, or you go and give the car a very detailed test in terms of the engineering and you get an RAC checkup person. None of which stuff necessarily is bad. My mum's way of buying a car, my mum knew nothing about cars but knew a lot about people, would have been to find someone she could trust who was selling their car. Mm. And find someone local you could trust who is selling the car for the simple reason that someone local is more likely to suffer embarrassment from selling you a bad car than someone 300 miles away. Mm. So what my mum would have understood is this local person who has a reputation for being a trustworthy individual has a lot of reputational skin in the game. And they would lose significant reputational capital if they were to sell me a car which then blew up, burst into flames and proved to have a gearbox full of sawdust. Now, I can't say without doing a parallel test of getting my mum to buy 100 cars and getting an RAC engineer to buy 100 cars at auction where you know nothing about the previous owner, it's not good. It's not enough to say that my mum is being irrational and the person who qualifies in engineering and looks at the state of the gearbox is being rational. Mm. I'm not sure. In fact, I'd probably bet on my mum to buy fewer catastrophically bad cars. Uh, using her methodology than the engineering person would and in many cases we use brands in the same way i don't really know which television is good um i'd like to buy a pretty good television Now we tend we're not necessarily maximizing here i want to buy a television that's in the best quartile of available tellies. the difference between good and very good is pretty trivial in, in many cases what i really don't want to do is buy a terrible television
3: mm.
1: and So the way we do that is we go, well, Panasonic stroke LG stroke Samsung stroke Sony have brand reputations worth billions that they have built up over many decades by building high quality products. It would be far more costly to them to sell a bad television than it would be to someone I've never heard of. So I use brand reputation there as a proxy for trustworthiness because someone who has reputational skin in the game, particularly, you know, with a heavy degree of um, you know non-replicability. I mean, it's taken Sony years to build up a reputation in that field. They're unlikely, just in order to score a quick buck, um, to uh, effectively imperil that reputation for the sake of flogging some dodgy tellies which they made by mistake.
3: Mm.
1: Now, we seem to do that instinctively. That seems to be a mechanism we use when making decisions. And we don't just ask a question about what it is that's being sold. We we, we arguably solve the easier problem, which is, can I trust the person who's selling it? Uh-huh. Now, once you understand this, I mean, economists would tend to think that brand preference is entirely irrational or it's driven by things like status signaling. I completely disagree. I think I think a preference for established brands uh, is ecologically rational. I think it shows humans at an extraordinarily intelligent level, in a sense saying, I can't solve the main problem, it's simply too costly or time-consuming. I mean, if I needed to understand what went into my OLED TV, I'd probably have to spend five years at university before I even made you know, a scratch of, a, of progress on the surface of things. Mm. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to have another question which stands in as a reliable proxy for that question, and I'm going to answer the other question. Mm -hmm. And similarly, a preference for advertised goods um, is not irrational once you understand the fact that costly signaling is a very, very common feature in nature, Mm -hmm. that we interpret the significance of a message not only by the information it ostensibly contains, but by the cost in terms of effort and expense that's gone into the creation of that message and also by the the cost consequent on the sender if that message is wrong.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So an example I always give of this is that Apple, which is, you know, many people would say the strongest brand in the world. For many years, it's produced a product called Apple TV, which is a pretty good product. It's very inexpensive. It's cheaper than more as anything else Apple sells. Um, it's about £100 or so. And although you had this product from Apple, which was very good, very few people bought it. It was a niche product. And one of the reasons was simply that Apple never promoted it. You never had Steve Jobs uh, dedicating five minutes of a keynote to Apple TV. You've never even seen an ad, even if you're reading T3 or stuff, you've never seen a bought advertisement for Apple TV in that publication. And people kind of inferred from that, well, maybe Apple isn't really committed to this, it's just a kind of hobby or a sideline, because if they were really serious about this product and believed it had a future, they would have invested some upfront money in telling people about it. And the absence of that commitment, if you like, the absence of that pre-commitment led people... Not altogether ridiculously, I think, to infer, well, there's a bit of a risk buying this because I could spend 130 quid on this only to find that Apple stops supporting the platform in three years' time. Mm-hmm. Whereas if Apple spent a few million quid going, Apple TV, it's great in paid media, that upfront expense will be a reliable indicator of future intention. Mm-hmm. So understanding that kind of thing, and humans seem to read this kind of thing instinctively, and I can give you an example where it's very easy to understand if you receive two wedding invitations, both of which contain absolutely identical information, name of parties getting married, location, date, time, but one of them arrived on an email, and the other one arrived on a gilt-edged card uh, with a handwritten envelope with a first-class stamp on it, for example. Although the information is identical, the inference you would make would be heavily influenced by the cost of communication. Mm. Now, you might think the second wedding on the Edge card is going to be a slightly annoying stuffy affair where you've got to rent morning dress. On the other hand, you'd probably expect not to have to pay for drinks at the bar. Mm. So there is all manner of inference we would draw, not not from the communication itself, but from the manner of its delivery.
0: Mm. So that's that's the value of the the. Contextual,
1: yeah, and, and communication. what's so interesting about it is that it's not that surprising that the way we interpret this kind of uh, tacit form of communication, the, the invisible, uh, non um, uh, non literal forms of communication, is highly instinctive because mm-hmm. probably in the evolutionary environment, uh, detecting reliable signals, who was lying and who wasn't. Mm-hmm um the failure to do that well would have led to fairly rapid extinction mm. you would be a you know you'd be effectively a patsy or a victim to any smooth talking rogue uh who came along with a plausible story
3: mm.
0: and the way you've described it there it, it it really explains i think the the that whole argument around framing marketing messaging with wording such as people like you you know your peers have done this you don't want to miss out necessarily. Um. Yeah,
1: Actually, a very fair point. If you assume that the job of a human is to maximise, in other mm. words, to buy the best telly possible, okay, social copying and habit are irrational. Mm. Once you accept, however, that the main preoccupation is not to make a perfect decision, it's mm. not to make a disastrous one, mm-hmm. then both copying a large number of other people or copying what you yourself have done before uneventfully, both of them make perfect sense, habit and social proof. Both make very, very good sense simply because, okay, what most people do may not be perfect, but it's unlikely to be totally shite. Mm-hmm. Similarly, if I've, if I've eaten at a restaurant 10 times before and I've never got ill and I've never been disappointed, I've always had a good meal. If I want to avoid a you know, bottom-decile meal, one which makes me ill or tastes revolting, going there again is a pretty damn reliable way of doing that. Mm. And yet,
0: coming back to the Apple TV example, wouldn't that have benefited just from the fact that it was probably being recommended by lots of people like you and like me?
1: Yeah. Now, personal recommendation is interesting because it is to some extent free, Mm-hmm. in the sense that if I recommend to you, as I do now, in fact, the Philips Air Fryer as being one of the greatest consumer products ever conceived by the wit of man, mm. what I am doing is I'm putting my reputation on the line a bit in mm. that if you buy this and it's rubbish, which you won't you won't find it rubbish because it's brilliant, um, but if you do buy it and find it to be a disappointment, um, I have lost reputational capital by looking like a bit of an idiot. Now, the yeah. most extreme case of that, I would argue, Uh, If you look at quite a lot of businesses, they recruit people by recommendation. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: Now, that looks like a bonkers way of going about it. It's very, very clever because whereas the person I recommend may not be perfect, the one thing I can't afford to do is go into Ogilvy and say, hey, you must hire my mate. He's brilliant when my mate actually is an alcoholic, say, Mm -hmm. okay,
2: right,
1: because what you're doing is you're recognizing the fact that by recommending um my friend i've got a lot of reputational skin in the game here I, I, I might i might not you know i might not have perfect motivation to find the very best candidate but i can't even if the guy is my best friend if the guy is going to let things down or prove to be catastrophic i can't recommend him mm mm-hmm. And so the human interaction is full of mechanisms like this which work not because they're perfect but because they're generally pretty good and they're never awful. Mm. And it's a really important point to remember about human decision-making that most human decision-making isn't like archery where you have aim for the bullseye, you get 10. If you just miss the 10, you get a 9. Miss the 9, you get an 8. Miss the 8, you get a 7. Concentric scoring outwards. A lot of human decisions are a bit like darts. It's not just a question of hitting the higher score, the triple 20. Actually, if you're not a very good darts player, don't aim for the triple 20 because you'll miss and you'll get a one, which is rubbish. It's 179 lower. If you aim for the southwestern quadrant of the board, if you're not, unless you're Phil the power tailor or <laughs> i make exceptions here. Um, if you aim for the southwestern quadrant of the board, you, may, you won't get 180, but you might get a triple 19 or a triple 16, and you won't get a 5 or a 1. You'll get an 8 or a 7. Mm-hmm. So the expected score is actually better when you don't maximize, you satisfy. You, you aim for a pretty good result, which is non-disastrous. hmm and most human decision making, in evolutionary terms, has been calibrated around doing that, and so it's very, very wrong to take a situation where someone can't maximise, like who to marry. You know, first of all, if you tried to maximise, you'd end up single because there'd always be someone better coming along. At some point, you've <laughs> got to go. Ah, oh, sod it. Let's go with this one. Seems <laughs> relatively non-mad. Um, uh, but. Um, So, you know, at some point you've got to plump for a choice, you know. You can't dither endlessly. But in taking situations where it's impossible to maximize and accusing people of being irrational for not maximizing is just a nonsense. Mm. Okay. But, I mean, it is very interesting in PR, the the personal recommendation. Right. Quite often, uh, I mean, the business of recommending someone for a job is actually a bit scary. Mm. You know, recommending a holiday resort to someone is a bit scary because if they have a disastrous holiday – Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of social capital that's suddenly been burned mm. uh, in that false recommendation.
0: Right. I mean, yeah, because it is kind of classic PR theory now that you you, you know a trusted influencer um, makes a, a word of mouth recommendation, and that is more valuable than.
1: And this is the PR. Not necessarily more valuable. I, I think mm-hmm. we've got to be very careful about that because um, an expensive claim. Mm-hmm you know, what you might call the Super Bowl ad or the most extreme um, uh, sports sponsorship. Right. Okay. Um, The the one thing you know about sports sponsorship is it costs a lot of money to do. Right. And the spending of a lot of money in such a way that it can only possibly pay back in the longer term is proof of an organization or a brand's long term time horizon. Mm -hmm. In other words, we are interested in being a bigger and greater company in 10 years time or five years time as we are today. A company that doesn't do that might be one of those companies which is effectively milking its existing customer base. We've all been to restaurants like that, haven't Mm. we? They're basically, they're not going anywhere. They're just milking the people who happen to walk by because they're close to a railway station, and they're providing pretty rubbish food. They don't really. Now, one of the ways you can detect the restaurants which are kind of effectively milking the status quo from the ones that are going places, um, and it's a very different kind of brand body language, is that the the ambitious restaurants effectively spend money on things which aren't immediately necessary. And one mm-hmm. of those things is advertising. Another one might be design. It might be mm-hmm. furnishings. It might be retiling the floor. But when we go into a restaurant, we read from all kinds of signifiers, like mm-hmm. how the place is decorated and so forth. Uh, we read enormous significance into those things and right. deduce what kind of business it is. Mm. One of the worst things you can ever do, by the way, I went to a restaurant um, and it, uh, it it's almost death. So it simply said, um, uh, we are closing down. And of course, my heart sank and the reason is that What's the point of giving someone a good meal when there's no opportunity they're ever going to come back? <laughs> and instinctively, we understood this. I didn't go, well, hey, close it. Now, in a retail shop, closing down means closing down sale. We've got to get rid of this stuff. Yeah. The stuff is the stuff. It's a bargain. In a restaurant, we, in, we make a completely different inference. We go, oh, shit. Yeah. Basically, these people, there's no incentive to them to make an effort at all because what the hell would be the point of them impressing me? Yeah,
0: so there's, there's a perceived value to the... To how costly the transmission yes. of information And
1: is. costly doesn't only mean financial expense, by right. the way. I would, okay. argue, yep. I would argue that creativity often has meaning because it's difficult to produce a creatively elegant ad and therefore it's symptomatic of effort.
3: Right, okay.
1: So the reason people probably wrote poetry to their fiancées in the Second World War rather than prose is the same kind of thing. Mm. It's a reliable indication of your commitment to that other the mm-hmm. fact that you can be bothered to write something in, in, in verse rather than in prose. How do you measure all of that on a spreadsheet? Um, well, you can, the thing is you can't completely. And I was I was talking to Nassim Taleb last night who, mm-hmm. who made this point that there are large parts of human behavior for which mathematical notation is not yet up to the job mm-hmm. of capturing it. I mean, right. Game theory gets you know, it grasps at a few areas of sort of very, very simplified one-on-one uh, human interaction but doesn't really ca- capture the sophistication of extraordinary human talents. Mm. Effectively, the, you know, the extent to which we use reputation in particular as a kind of proxy for trust. Mm. Reputational skin in the game. Yeah. Um, is um, and, and what's so interesting about this stuff is that we instinctively understand it and act on it. Uh, much... Um, without really knowing why. Mm. So uh, the example I always give of this is that about five years after I would left university, and there were about four of us who'd all moved down to London at the same time after graduating. And around the same time, we could all afford our first shitty second-hand car, which I think everybody in London, actually, Gen Y probably don't bother. They just Uber it or join Zipcar. But don't forget that Uber and Zipcar and so forth didn't exist back then. So you always had to buy this shitty second-hand car about, you know, when you're about 27 or something. Mm. And all of us did exactly the same thing, almost like salmon returning to spawn. We went back to the small towns where we'd grown up, in kind of Bradf- um, just outside Bradford in one case, Welsh borders in my case. And we bought a car from someone vaguely known to our dad. Mm, right. Now, we, we did this instinctively. It just felt comfortable, you know. And we were, we, we, I went back to kind of Monmouth almost like this salmon homing instinct. But what was intelligent about it was the guy there selling the car. He might sell shitty cars, but he mm-hmm. wasn't going to sell his shittiest car to the son of someone who drinks in the same pub as most of his future customers.
3: Okay,
2: right. and so
1: that reputational feedback loop was something we understood mm-hmm. instinctively.
2: Mm.
1: Which I mean, one of the friends who did it was a mathematician. He did, he couldn't. No, none of us explained it in those terms. We didn't use that that language. Yeah. Nonetheless, we just felt this feels okay.
0: Yeah. And yet. Everything you've described now, as you've just said, um, it's not necessarily easy to measure. We're in this era where... This this fetishization of measurement is
1: is dangerous because what you can always do um, is, if you want to appear rational, you can always take a complex problem strip out most of the complexity so that you're left with a very narrow frame of reference Mm -hmm. so that it now becomes a simple optimization problem. You then solve that subsection of the overall problem, optimize it, reimpose it on the whole system as if you've necessarily improved the system. Mm -hmm. And it's a very, very dangerous approach. So you can always achieve a kind of rational consistency by simply narrowing your frame of reference. And I call this sat-nav thinking, which Mm -hmm. is... My sat-nav is highly rational, and it gives me a precise and optimized answer to a very simple question, which is what is the fastest expected journey time uh, to your destination? And what interests me is that the, what the evolved human brain is better at is answering not coming up with a perfect answer to a narrow frame problem, but coming up with a pretty good answer to a wide frame of reference mm. problem. Now, what's interesting is I quite often ignore my satnav. Mm-hmm. And one of the most interesting instances of this is I tend to obey my sat-nav when I come back from the airport when I've landed
2: because
1: mm-hmm. then it's quite well suited. I want to get home as quickly as possible and what's the best route on average. Mm-hmm. When I'm going to the airport, I ignore the satnav, And the reason is the satnav is not answering the right question.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's saying this is the M25 is the fastest way to get to Gatwick, which it is most of the time. But there's a downside, which is if the M25 cocks up, I'm stuck for an hour and a half at Clackett Lane. I miss my plane. Mm-hmm. So what I actually do is I ignore the sat-nav. I take the A25, which is always 10 minutes slower, but it's never an hour slower. Mm. And even though I waste 10 minutes every time, I don't miss the flight. Mm. And so that's what the human brain does, which in a sense, it's where you can always appear to be very irrational and optimal by taking an extraordinarily narrow frame of reference. Mm-hmm. And I think the danger is with this, culture in business where it is much much easier to be fired for being irrational than it is for being unimaginative right so if you're a business guy the you know if you do something imaginative and it works you get a kind of pat on the back okay mm-hmm. if you do something rational and boring and it doesn't work um nobody's that delighted but you keep your job mm. if you do something irrational and it fails You're out. Yeah. Now, if you look at the asymmetry there, it's rationality. If it works, get pat on back. If it fails, keep job. Mm -hmm. Imagination. If it works, get pat on back. uh, If it fails, dead man. Mm. That's an extraordinarily biased system where people are overly um, incentivized not to make a good decision, but to make a seemingly rational one, which is easy to defend. Mm. And
0: doesn't that mean that this kind of of this fetishization, as you put it, of measurement of big data, even is that something that you think clouds it, decision making?
1: Que- it's an interesting question to ask. What proportion of actual business activity is arse covering of some mm. kind or another? Mm-hmm. Um, Uh, What would you guess on market research? 50%? Are we being too kind? Are we being too mean? A very, very large two-digit percentage of market research does not exist in order to advance the pool of human knowledge Mm. or to make a better decision. It's to prevent someone being fired in the event of their decision turning dirty. Management consultancy, 60%, 70%. Okay. I mean, seriously, there are huge businesses out there where most of the raison d'etre is really um, uh, reputational insurance. Uh, Interesting. Not yeah. for not for the organisation itself, but for a particular um, functionary or employee within it.
0: For the decision maker,
1: and yeah, the amount the amount of this that goes on is, I think, spectacular. If you're going to be brutal about that, um, you can also argue that um, there is a very strong. We occasionally used to call this uh, Heathrow bias. If you make a boring decision. Um, So the the example we gave is we used to – British Airways operates flights from London City to uh, JFK. Mm -hmm. And given that a large number of the people crossing the Atlantic work in either the city or Canary Wharf,
2: Mm. you
1: would have expected the London City flights to New York to have been booked out pretty rapidly because there were only 64 seats a day, on these, which is a tiny fraction, all business class. And for a long time, they were half full. And our theory was very simple. They're all business class seats. The flights booked by the PA. Think about it instinctively. If you if you can imagine yourself inside the amygdala mm-hmm. of a Goldman Sachs personal assistant, okay? Yeah. Her amygdala, which is risk averse, is effectively thinking, if I book the guy from Heathrow and the flight's delayed, he blames British Airways Mm. because it's a default decision. No one ever rings up their pay and goes, you total lunatic. What were you thinking booking me from the world's busiest international airport? Are you mad? Right. OK. So the amygdala goes, woo, that's pretty safe. Looking at London City, it's probably a better choice on average. But one time in 20, the flight's going to be delayed.
3: Mm.
1: Now, he doesn't blame British Airways. He blames you. Because the more eccentric your decision is, the more likely you are to attract flack should that decision prove bad.
0: Mm. No one ever got fired for fired, buying, IBM. buying IBM.
1: And similarly, you can look at it with people taking penalty kicks in um, even World Cup semifinals or finals. You mm. should, the players taking the penalties should kick the ball straight down the middle more often than they do. Mm. The reason they don't isn't that you're less likely to score, you're more likely to score. You just look much stupider if you fail. And that's an amygdala decision. Now an interesting question is how can you prevent this? So if it's a question of flying to New York, one way to prevent this is to say to your PA, I wanted to come up with three solutions for getting to New York. I want one of them to be eccentric. And if I choose the eccentric one, that's my call. Mm. Similarly, if you're the manager of the England team and you're about to take yet another series of penalties at some international footballing conference uh, you should probably say okay player two and player five i want you to welly the ball straight down the middle if you miss tell them i told you to do this
2: yeah right
1: okay so there are ways in which you can counterbalance this kind of defensive decision making right. but it um, left to their own devices the amygdala basically goes you know i, I want to make a pretty good decision but i definitely don't want i don't want to lose my job or end up being shouted at
0: yeah it's so funny no one ever got fired for buying IBM we used to say the same thing about hiring a certain big ad agency in asia um, no uh, one ever got fired for no, no, hiring no. IBM. and if
1: if you want to be blunt about it i mean uh, you know the existence of ogilvy uh, can be partly attributed to this bias i think i should be honest here <laughs> i would also say you know the big four accounting firms and the large mm-hmm. management consultancies mm. if you appoint one of them and it goes wrong people blame them if you mm-hmm. appoint a small boutique firm right. now you're next on the line Because you actually, effectively, by making an eccentric decision, you're sticking your head above the parapet far more.
0: Mm. So this idea of of rational-based decision-making versus making decisions based on emotional triggers, this is actually down to to the brain, the way the human brain is, is structured.
1: There are certainly parts of the brain where they the way the brain controls our behavior is not by generating reasons but by generating emotions.
0: Mm. And why do so few brands, companies, marketers, communicators... Appear to understand.
1: I think they do it quite well, but they don't necessarily understand it. Now, mm-hmm. let me explain this. I think the way that capitalism works to a great extent is much more Darwinian and much less planned than we like to believe. I think there are cases where companies flukishly happen to do something which appeals massively to human emotion, mm-hmm. and those companies tend to succeed because people give them more, more money. And so in many cases, I don't think f- Let's take an example of Red Bull, for example. I don't think anybody could have sat down in a committee and said, What the world really needs is a really expensive soft drink that comes in a tiny can and tastes repulsive. Okay. (laughs) No one would have come up with that. But something about Red Bull works with the amygdala. Uh, And I think it may be, and this is pure post rationalization, because I couldn't have come up with Red Bull. I mean, you know, it's completely bonkers. Um, This is why, I mean, Natural selection, as R.A. Fisher said, I think, he said natural selection is a mechanism for generating the highly improbable. Mm. And free market capitalism is the same thing. It's a mechanism for generating things which... Simple human rationality would never really come up. No one sitting down with a Supreme Soviet would say, well, what the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics really needs is a disgusting tasting soft drink. So what's going on here, I think, is the amygdala probably likes it because we think if we want to believe that something's got psychotropic or, or medicinal powers, it's got to taste a bit yucky. Ah, right. So I don't trust Nurofen meltlets because they're too tasty. Mm. You know what I mean? Whereas yeah. real Nurofen, if you bite into that, my God, that's awful. And so I think there is there is a mechanism, a mental mechanism, which is kind of looking for a trade-off. It's a bit like okay. wheatgrass. This stuff yeah. must be good for me because it's basically like snogging the underside yeah. of my fly-mo. It's like kale. Kale. Kale is, yeah, no, exactly right. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, one of the things, often we look at, you know, the way that PR works, the way that public relations um, likes to communicate messages and it's often very much based on facts. It's the white paper, the rational argument versus advertising often telling a great story, maybe not based in facts at all, but very emotional, more compelling, almost like a Democrat versus a Republican in a way. And often the more emotional argument seems to be more compelling. Uh, Jonathan
1: Haidt would say that, that the Republicans historically in the United States understood the whole palette of human emotions right. better than the Democrats did. Exactly. Um, yeah. you're, you're right to say... Certain, I, I mean, actually, good PR has always had a wonderful element of great storytelling to it. Mm. Um, uh, that Stories are kind of the PDF files of human information. They, they make information both more storable and more shareable. Mm. If something's in narrative format... It has a kind of stickiness and a shareability to it, which mere human statistics. There's a wonderful example, I think, which is there's a very big difference between the king died and then the queen died versus the king died and then the queen died of grief. Mm. You know, One of them is just vastly more stickable <laughs> uh, in the head and, and um, vastly more memorable and more likely to be shared mm. than at the, at the other extreme, a, a bar chart in The Economist or something yeah. of that kind.
0: Right. And so that ability, I think, as you said, to understand why emotions are so powerful in messaging. I mean, that's that's got to be critical, not just for, for agencies like your own, but, but for big companies, for, for people that run yeah. these
1: companies. Just- much, first of all, there's a kind of weird moral sense that if you appeal to the emotions, this, this, this goes back mm. to Plato, which right. is this kind of weird idea that – and Freud to an extent as well perpetrated it, which is the idea that the, uh, the unconscious is kind of pervy and weird and right. nasty yeah. and needs to be suppressed by reason. Uh, the, the interesting thing there is that um, uh, that is a very, very pervasive thing, a very good book. Uh, by Timothy D. Wilson called Strangers to Ourselves Mm. makes the case. And he said, I have to call it the adaptive unconscious. And he said it's almost close to common sense, Mm -hmm. in fact. But he said, I can't call it the unconscious because everybody basically thinks it's deviant and pervy and full of sort of strange, um, uh, you know, uh, bizarre, uh, transgressive desires. And it's only this power of reason, you know, this weird, rational Frenchman sitting in my forehead that keeps the <laughs> whole thing under control. And that idea is very, very pervasive. And you can mm. understand why it's plausible. But Timothy D. Wilson's book makes the point that actually our unconscious does some really, really smart stuff. Mm mm-hmm. In fact, people without access to the adaptive unconscious, but with still with access to reasoning powers, are incapable of making decisions. There's some very very interesting experiments with people who suffered brain damage, or uh, you know, very uh, where very selective parts of the brain have been disabled, where they're ac- they're fully incapable of making their mind up. Mm. And so he made this point, and, and he said, the strange thing is I have to call it the adaptive unconscious, because if I just call it the unconscious, everybody goes, no, 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 we can't have any of that. And there is that weird belief that appeal to the unconscious is basically manipulation and distortion, whereas appeal to reason is noble. Mm, um, right. This is, by the way, sometimes true. I think it's fair to say. I'm not I'm not I'm not saying that no, 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 we should purely, you know, let the id go wild. But actually you can <laughs> By failing to understand the wider context within which the adaptive unconscious acts, you can give something a course of action, the appearance of complete reason, Mm -hmm. while being blind to something else. Mm. Okay. And so... Um, you know, there is that kind of what you might call, um, uh, I think it was said of Enoch Powell, he was driven mad by the remorselessness of his own logic. And I think there are, you know, there are people like that, where, you know, they become so, fe- you know, they fetishize a certain reasonable thing, so, so such point, they really become ridiculous.
0: Mm. And does all of this help to explain the rise of, for example, Donald Trump?
1: Yeah, you have to i mean uh, this is going i mean this is probably career threatening now but i kind of quite admire him as a mm. communicator because he's almost by mouthing off he's inoculated himself against future scandal in the same way that a kind of tetanus shot mm-hmm. inoculates you right um he's got a very very brilliant understanding i think of a large part of america which the intellectual elite either despises or f- and or fails to understand completely.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, It's interesting too, which is, by the way, I don't think you get a full measure of the man or can understand his success fully living in the UK. Mm -hmm. Let me just explain that. I had a friend, very left wing friend at university who then went to the United States uh, in the, I suppose, 1987. And one of the things she did say, despite being an you know, archetypal South Welsh Valley socialist was that she was surprised how impressive Ronald Reagan was, because when she moved to the United States, you'd see Reagan talking on television. He was a very, very good orator. And in many cases, he spoke about normal subjects in a completely reasonable way. In British TV, you only got footage of Reagan up until about, possibly until the late 80s, you only got footage of Reagan when he made some gaff or fluffed something. <laughs> okay. And it was very, very selective coverage. And we tend to only get coverage of Trump saying, beautiful big wall. Mm. Now, interestingly, um, at the time of that Chicago riot, I turned over to Fox News, which is broadcast on on Sky.
2: Mm.
1: And Trump rings up Fox News and talks to them in Completely reasonable terms, which was surprising to me because I've never heard Trump mm. say anything kind of normal or reasonable or sensible. Surprising for Fox News as well. It was no, no. <laughs> I, mean, I completely agree. But uh, but what 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 interested me there is I, I don't I don't think people seeing only the British coverage of Trump mm-hmm. quite get the breadth of what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Which is when you're up there, it's a tribal thing, and you deliberately say things which wind up the very people that his. Base hate, yeah, and there is a kind of smug intellectual know-it-all economist reading Davos attending caste, which have disproportionately, I think. uh, I don't think they're malicious, but I think they are spectacularly self-satisfied. It's one of the problems of meritocracy. Mm. A good thing about an aristocracy is they did kind of know it was arbitrary, whereas these people think that they're, you know, they're you know, whatever it is from the Wharton School and their degree from the Kennedy School of Administration, mm. uh, give them a kind of right to pontificate and that other people are ignorant and stupid. Mm. And Trump knows that that kind of um, cast of people are peculiarly irritating mm. to the kind of people who'll vote for him.
0: Yeah. So he's he's appealing to emotions. He's, if you like, campaigning in poetry.
1: Um, yeah. Um, he, um, and it, it's a very strange thing to describe to, to refer to Trump's poetry. But he um, uh, he's very, very clever. What Jonathan Haidt would call talking to the elephant. Mm. That, you the know, Haidt's model of the human brain is you have the rider on the elephant and the the rider is the conscious reasoning part. The elephant is the unconscious. The most important thing is that two things happen. One, the rider is delusionally convinced that they're actually in charge of the elephant, whereas the truth is, you can't get the elephant to do anything he doesn't want to do. Right. And a lot of marketing activity, I think, makes the mistake of talking to the rider when it also needs. I'm not suggesting you talk exclusively to the elephant, mm-hmm. but it basically, you can use the most beautiful. Um, Cartesian logic you like, but if the elephant doesn't like what you wanted to do, it won't do it. Mm. and that applies in marketing as well. you know I, I, there is no way I can use the power of reason to convince you to marry someone, support a football team, or buy a car
3: mm.
1: And sometimes, by the way, that that's simply because um, it's not because the elephant is wrong, it's that the elephant has not been presented with a piece of information it needs to be reassured, right. for instance.
0: Okay, well, leaving aside. I'll give you, I'll give you a lovely example yeah. of that
1: from call centre work we did is that nobody could make a decision between three options mm-hmm. often in a call. And then we said, quite truthfully, most people choose B, but if you like, you can have A or C.
2: <laughs>
1: now, the second the elephant heard most people choose chose B, they effectively go, well, B's probably okay.
2: Mm.
1: And actually, if I have a good reason to choose A or C, because I'm not like most people, I'll choose A or C. But failing that, B sounds pretty much okay. Mm. And that's that's basically elephant whispering. Yeah, to so it's on the same
0: heights. That, that kind of
1: safety in numbers no, per, uh, and, and, and as I said, ecologically rational. Yeah, evolutionary yeah. mechanism. Yeah. Yeah, perfectly sensible. A
0: bit worrying when safety in numbers gets you something like Donald Trump or or worse.
1: Um, the odd thing about Trump, by the way, which um, everybody's astonished about his popularity. But the other thing they seem to miss is that in most respects, he's about the most left-wing republican out there Mm. so his mouth is really right wing right Mm -hmm. now bluntly speaking people of the kind who vote for trump have mouths which are some measure to the right of their actual behavior Mm -hmm. okay uh, political correctness, for reasons I don't fully understand, drives people on the right practically insane.
0: Yeah, well, it's a big
1: threat to uh, life um, as well, we know it. <laughs> it's also actually with political correctness is also a status game in mm. some way, in that there are aspects of it. So, for example, white person at Ivy League leaping in in defence of offended Mexicans mm-hmm. is actually really patronising to Mexicans at yeah. some level. You know, the idea that I, you know, you need me and my whiteness and my, you know, my extensive qualifications at the age of 21, when, you know, let's face it, I mean, Mexicans are pretty capable of fighting back verbally. And then, you know, it's not as if they need, you know, this ludicrous paternalistic behaviour. So there are aspects of it which are really weird status games being played out using the pawn as pawns, Mm. you know, certain groups which are you know they claim to be there to protect. So it's not it's not all nice. I mean there is a nice aspect to it don't defend people don't get me wrong I'm not I'm not being uh, completely bastardish here. Mm-hmm. I and mean, there's also a, a bigger philosophical question which is one way in which human beings rub along certainly in the UK is by very mildly slagging each other off. Right. So it's complicated. I mean, there are, you know, there are cases where, you know, in probably in a platoon in the army, you can tell you've got a, you know, a well-rounded platoon when they're always just taking the piss out of each other. That's mm-hmm. probably a good sign. Yeah. So it's not necessarily true that not saying anything is necessarily evidence of harmony. Mm. Um, But... um. There is I mean there's this thing called virtue signaling which I think was a, a phrase coined in the spectator which is that people are not really actually doing anything of any value to these groups they're simply drawing attention to their own virtuousness by dint of their heightened sensitivity to more or less any kind of perceived slight and mm. it's, it's It's a bit bullshit. So by not doing this, Trump actually mouthing off in this way selectively is being quite clever. Because there's a large chunk of people who just go, actually, I'm quite a nice guy. I just like being rude to people occasionally. (laughs) And it also proves, you see, the other thing, you can always draw the accusation that Hillary and the others are effectively in the pocket of you know, large organisations. Yeah, and his ability to just say anything. And the very fact that he says what he likes proves he's his own man.
2: Yeah.
1: And people arguably want someone who's a bit like, he's a bit of a mensch, you know, he's a bit of a, you know, he's a bit of a honcho.
2: Yeah.
1: And um, so that very, that independence of speech is, of course, costly signalling, which is, I couldn't Mm. afford to do this if I were in the pocket of... Monsanto or whoever it might be who who wow. um, who funds everybody else,
0: yeah, that's such a good point. Last issue I wanted you to to address from a behavioral perspective is brexit is brexit is it? please tell look at the campaigns, Tell me what you think because it does seem to me like brexit's despite perhaps the overwhelming weight of evidence, I don't know. But Brexit think, has a compelling campaign.
1: I, I, I don't think there's weight of evidence. I think that the danger of the Stay campaign is that, and this happened with the Scottish referendum, is mm-hmm. you bring in a load of business people, okay, and a, you know the chief executive of a large multinational business headquartered in the UK says, I think the status quo is a very good thing. Mm-hmm. Well, everybody in charge of a yeah. large organisation is going to be in favour of maintaining the status quo. Interestingly, yeah. entrepreneurs like Dyson, are in favour of leaving, which which surprised Mm -hmm. me, in fact, given that he runs a very international business. But quite a lot of the people I meet who are kind of entrepreneurs um, uh, don't adopt this approach because their business is not maintaining a status quo. It's disrupting it. Yeah. And,
2: you
1: know, um, there is, is, by the way, a huge value to... effectively shitting on the status quo from time. That's what democracy is for. Mm. You know, one of the reasons why democracy leads to a kind of stability is we do have a way, if we just find the ruling caste tiresome for any reason you know, we can occasionally affect a bit of a purge. It's why I'm in favor of disproportional representation. <laughs> because whatever you think about the British electoral system and its mm. bonkers, we do get a clean sweep every eight years or 10 years or so. Right. Okay, which is, see that lot, we got sick of them, they've all gone. Yeah. Whereas in Europe, you just get a, you know, you get the same old shit yeah. in a slightly different ratio. Yeah. And the point of democracy is we're looking at it from the long lens. It's nothing about choosing the perfect government. It's getting rid of governments you really don't like. Mm. It works negatively. It doesn't work positive. I mean, nothing like the kind of government I'd I'd choose. I'm I'm not entirely sure what I would choose as a form of government. But it does enable me to get rid of a government when its time has passed Mm -hmm. or when it's just disproportionately annoying. Mm. And that business of kicking out political casts every now and then um, is very necessary. Nassim Taleb always said that actually democracy um, has been slightly miscalibrated simply because people don't die very often now. So if you think about it previously, quite a lot of people who are politicians would have been um, knocked out at 40 or 50 or 60 simply Mm. through natural death. Now we need other mechanisms for just, you know, um, effectively maintaining churn Mm -hmm. uh, in that cast. But I think there is an argument that you have these people who, A, they're obviously in favor of the status quo because they run large businesses. And I think think Mm. the elephant can spot that. Mm -hmm. Okay, You you would, wouldn't you? Mm Mm-hmm. Secondly, I think there's a question which is that um, the arguments are very narrowly economic. And what I say is you achieve your rationality at the price of breadth. Mm -hmm. And the way the message comes across is is if we should get up every morning and ask some – Aim for quality of life should be to maximize annualized GDP growth, right. or whatever it is. And no, one okay. does that. and no one really lives like that. No one yeah. thinks my idea of the good life is 2.3% <laughs> compound AGR, whatever it is, except for these weird business people who, of course, are very successful business people yeah. because they have a very narrow, slightly aspergic frame of reference. Mm. And It's deeply – I think it fails to resonate with the elephant because it is such a deeply dry argument. Okay, it's absolutely true. It's generally better to be richer than poorer. I'm not disputing any of those things. But there's a value to autonomy, of course. Mm. You know, we instinctively place a high value on being able to make your own decisions. And we probably, in tribal terms, we also regard it as pretty axiomatic that a government should favor its own citizens over those citizens elsewhere, yeah and if you start to break a few of those rules, then uh, the whole mechanism um, you know becomes completely discalibrated
2: mm-hmm. and I think
1: that I think that probably has happened to a degree. I mm. think that um, uh, it's i mean <laughs> there are other there are other weird problems at stake as well. But I think that point that it's not simply if you genuinely think this is just about economics. Mm -hmm. Uh, then you're missing the point. It's also about sovereignty, autonomy, uh, the right to make your own mistakes rather than other people's, because I'd much rather make my own mistakes, even Mm -hmm. if they're worse than other people's mistakes, because at least they're my mistakes. I mean, psychological factors like that need to be considered as well. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, I'd I'd rather cock... I mean, anybody who's got children, okay, they Mm -hmm. won't listen, because basically what the children want to do is they want to cock it up their own way. Mm -hmm. And eventually, when you've got teenage children, you just learn learn Mm -hmm. to live with that. And that's not a total, bonkers instinct the idea that um, you know the whole purpose because it is the problem with this kind of Davos efficiency the great efficiency fetish is it is it's not a bad idea I'm not even suggesting it's wrong but it's spectacularly narrow in that the you know the only thing it can see as the project for the future is make things bigger you know reduce barriers harmonize things make things more efficient Mm. And most people aren't motivated, unless you're some sort of weird accountant with a fetish for that kind of thing. (laughs) Most people just don't get their rocks off on that stuff.
0: No, they don't. So if you were advising the Remain campaign, Mm -hmm.
1: uh,
0: what would you be telling them to do?
1: They're probably doing it or trying to do it, which is the fear thing, which is Mm. occasionally called Project Fear, which is it's lot aversion. You emphasize Mm -hmm. the risk of making this decision.
0: Mm. Is there enough at stake? Perceived. Well, it's an interesting
1: question because where it becomes slightly awkward, mm. okay, and this is where the, the stay campaign runs into trouble, is let's say you want to emphasize the fear, okay, and you say, well, if we leave the EU, there's no guarantee that we'll be able to, you know, buy f- cheese from France and uh, they'll cut off supplies of, you know, I don't know, bratwurst or whatever it is, <laughs> okay, and you, know, uh, and, you know, everything will be terrible. Now, the only point about using that argument is, well, hold on, if they really hate us that much, what the fuck are we doing in a club <laughs> with them in the first place? Okay? If genuinely your threat is these people are going to um, wreak vengeance upon us, mm. if we um, spite them by leaving their club,
2: mm-hmm.
1: then the only problem with that argument is, well, hold on a second. What you're, what you're basically suggesting is that I should stay in an abusive marriage
2: mm.
1: um, for purely economic reasons, which doesn't, doesn't really work very well as an emotional argument. Maybe it
0: does when you talk to people who have been through a divorce.
1: Well, not many people, I guess, wish they'd stayed, do they? No, that's probably true. It's probably true. They do talk a lot about how much it cost them. Oh, yes. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, the the only point about the matter is that when when you deploy the threats, you are undoubtedly saying no, no, we effectively you're saying this isn't really a club, it's a protection racket. Mm. Because if we choose to leave, they right. will, you know, they will effectively um, be disproportionately unpleasant. Mm. Well, if they're prepared to do that, I'm not sure I want to be in this club in the first place. But right. I haven't decided yet. Um, haven't. I'm, I'm on the fence, uh, just for interest,
0: like a lot of people, I imagine still. Um Rory, thank you so much it's for It's always time. a pleasure. Anytime. This has been amazing, a real whirlwind tour, and we hope to have you back at some point. Uh, this is Arun Sudhaman signing off with the Echo Chamber PR show from the Holmes Report. Please do rate and review us on iTunes. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook. Email me. We're always interested in your feedback. We'll be back soon. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. Thanks to Marketeers 4DC for producing today's show. We'll be back in a couple of weeks.